0: The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow
1: brings, UnitedHealthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax,
0: and think about work. You really, really want it
1: all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow, wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
2: Well, actually, I believe it was big swinging Dicks. So there was obviously an overexcited imagination on the part of some, I would suggest,
0: Because if he wants to know what misogyny looks like in modern Australia, he doesn't need a motion in the House of Representatives. He needs a
2: mirror. I love the mansplaining. I'm enjoying it. What's mansplaining, Senator? Welcome back to In the House and In the Senate, where we talk to the women of Australian politics about who they are, what they do and why it matters. In the House and in the Senate is supported by Plan International Australia, the charity for girls' equality. As a leading humanitarian organisation working in 80 countries, Plan International Australia tackles poverty and supports communities through crisis. Plan work on some of the most important issues of our time, from gender equality, sexual and reproductive health rights, sexual harassment and action on the climate crisis. I'm your host, Alicia Aiken-Radburn. I'm a former federal and state political staffer, passionate about making a positive change in our world. Let's get into today's episode. Lucy Stronick is the current Australian youth representative to the United Nations. Through 2021, Lucy has been touring Australia to identify the concerns, needs and experiences of diverse and underrepresented young people before reporting to key stakeholders, including the Australian government and the United Nations. Her work has taken her to the streets of Mumbai to fight for the empowerment of sex workers, to juvenile prisons in San Diego to aid young offenders, and to the UNDP in Bangkok to work with youth leaders in the promotion of human rights and justice. Thanks for joining me, Lucy. Lucy, you are Australia's youth representative to the United Nations casually. (laughs) Tell me about this. Like, how did we become our youth representative? And I'm like, far out. It seems so wild when I say it like that, but it was honestly like the most simple pro. I just submitted an application.
0: I'd moved back from Sri Lanka, been there for like a year studying and interning over there, and I had no idea what to do next with my life. I was so lost. I was like, I always had a plan. Now I have nothing to do. And I submitted the application like 15 minutes before it was due. I remember I had the worst flu as well. I was on cold and flu tablets just trying to type this thing out, submitted it, got a phone call, did an interview, and here I am. So it was a bit of a whirlwind process actually getting the role. But I definitely sort of oriented my life towards this kind of stuff. So I spent a lot of time in the social justice space moving towards this
2: position, I guess. Let's wind back the clock a little bit. Sri Lanka. Yeah. Oh, sorry, that was
0: such a random throw in there. Sri Lanka.
2: <laughs> what, what were the, what, what sort of like the steps behind your interest in, and what do I even describe it at, international relations? Travel. Honestly, it's travel. Oh, really? I think, yeah, my
0: parents were really amazing and kind of prioritised a lot of travel when I was younger, which I'm so privileged to have had those opportunities to see the world particularly the Indo-Pacific region. Like I've been to Europe once when I was like 17 for a quick holiday. But aside from that, I've always spent my time around Asia and seeing the richness of those cultures there and how amazing those places were to travel to. I was like, right, I want to somehow combine my passions in social justice and, and helping people and international relations and politics with travel. And so that's what I did. And uni was fundamentally... Important for that. Um, university is a great space to do things like exchange. Uh, when I went to Sri Lanka, that was on the New Colombo Plan Scholarship. And so that's, nice. that was started by Julie Bishop, oh my God, maybe eight years ago now. Um, and it's been running ever since. And it sends about 100 Australian students over to the Indo Pacific for up to 18 months. And you intern, you study, you travel, um, and you become really ingrained in those cultures. And that means that, you know, when they come back to Australia, we've got all of these grad ready. Asia aware young people, wow. which is amazing.
2: So, are you still studying?
0: No, thank God.
2: <laughs> so you eight were... years at uni.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. don't worry. I was professional student. I was
2: like five years. Yeah. So, tell me about your university experience. Mm. Were you doing something related to sort of IR or?
0: Not really. Oh, so my fir- I've got three degrees, which is ridiculous. But like I said, That's I'm just awesome. a professional student. I love studying. I love learning. Um, and like I said, the university environment is very conducive to travel and all of these incredible opportunities that have, I guess, filled out my my portfolio or my career. Um, so my first degree was in security, terrorism, and counterterrorism studies. So that. Was a bit IR, a bit politics Where focused. Where did you go? Murdoch University. Oh, cool. Yeah.
2: Murdoch for all three? Yeah.
0: Uh, no, my last one was at UWA. Okay, so I amazing. went to the dark side, jump ship. <laughs> um, but yeah, the first one was security terrorism, counterterrorism and criminology. So that were my two degrees that I did there. Um, and then I followed that up with a Bachelor of Criminology in Criminal Behaviour and Legal Studies. So I dabbled a bit more into the law side of things. Um, and then I did my honours in Law and Society at UWA, which was last year so finished finished up
2: last year eight years of wow. slogging it out at uni so is your full-time job the youth rep or do you have another job on the side or what what, what where do you sort of see your career going uh, no idea
0: absolutely no idea it's it. something I grapple with every day can I I'm be like,
2: pervy and ask how old you are yeah 25 25 got it's it this is
0: awful time I think 25 is the worst because I'm not young enough to be like I don't know what I'm doing like wow, ah, just having fun but I'm kind of not old enough to have a full career and a direction yet. And I just find it really confusing being 25.
2: I really love that because, <laughs> honestly, I, I, I went through the same thing. Yeah. And I think a lot of people would relate to that. But I also love that you're like, I'm 25, I have no clue what I want to do. But you're also Australia's youth representative to the United yeah. Nations. I think that's always been my thing <laughs> is just
0: see what happens, kind of go with the flow. Opportunities will come up, take them, see where it takes you. And that's a very privileged position to be able to take. Um, But it doesn't come without costs. So as you mentioned, like, is Youth Threat my full-time job? It's it's not a job. It's volunteer. So it's fully unpaid. And I've been doing that for about two years now. And that does take a hit financially when, you know, you're trying to support yourself in full-time. You're doing unpaid social justice work, which is so important. But at the same time, I've sort of realised in the last year there is a space for me and I need to actually prioritise myself a little bit, um, which is where my paid job actually comes into things and that's complemented my youth rep role really nicely. So at the moment I am consulting through the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. I'm consulting uh, former Senator Natasha stott Despoja, Awesome. And so she's just been elected to the UN Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women. And so her job, which is absolutely incredible, is to basically fight for women's rights on that international stage. Um, Wow. They meet in Geneva three times a year to discuss women's rights, to meet with all the different state parties, so the the countries that have ratified this convention, um, and they sort of grill them about women's rights and start pushing for, uh, you know, better support and less discrimination in those countries. So I've been supporting her for about eight months now, which has been the most amazing opportunity in my life. It is absolutely incredible what we get to do together so I'm very blessed to have that actual paid opportunity that really does integrate nicely into my youth rep work.
2: Tell me a bit more about the youth rep work. So you, you filled out the application yeah. in Sri Lanka. <laughs> and- very last minute,
0: which I shouldn't tell people. But-
2: <laughs> <laughs> and, and now you are yeah. our youth representative. What does that mean and what do you do? So it's my primary
0: responsibility to advocate for young people and to represent their voices on the national and international stage. Um, And the way that we do that in Australia, it differs country to country. So there are a lot of different youth delegates or youth reps around the world and we all kind of have our unique programs. In Australia, we do that by running the largest face-to-face consultation of young people, in one of the largest in the world, if not the largest in the country. Um, And so I spent seven months-ish of this year, travelling around Australia, talking to young people, listening to their concerns, working with them to envision solutions for change, come up with ideas for change, um, come up with amazing micro-level community-based solutions to these big issues that we're grappling with. Um, And that way when I talk to MPs or policymakers and really do that advocacy work or I talk to the United Nations, I have a very solid foundation of what young people actually want and that's the most important thing: is actually talking to the key stakeholders in this, which are our youth, and finding out what they want and what they need.
2: What are you finding out from that the, that mm. consultation process?
0: So we just sort of wrapped up a bit of data processing initially, because through these consultations, we also collect a lot of information from young people, and eventually that will go into a report. When I have five minutes to write it,
2: <laughs> my god! Um, honestly, I'm like, volunteer. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I'm like, where do I find the time? Um, but So far, it's probably unsurprising that the top 10 issues, number one is climate change and the environment. Mm -hmm. And I think that's particularly relevant at the moment with COP26 happening. Um, And I think next was things like gender equality, it's education, it's racism and discrimination, Indigenous justice, um, the education system, et cetera. So they are big, heavy hitting issues that young people are concerned about, Um, but what's beautiful about these consultations is that we dive really deeply into them and into the ways that they manifest and affect young people in that community space and then what we can do about it.
2: What do and how do you like I find that fascinating that you sort of dive into it further and find out how it manifests in their lives because Mm. I often you know as someone who's an older am i an older millennial no, 29 i don't know no, I, I don't even know 30. who i am
0: okay. It's not your 20s it's so fun sorry
2: i was listening to like they were talking about vaccination rates and they were talking about the brackets and he was like some percentage of uh, the every, old the people 20s <laughs> oh i was like i'm i'm a tw- i'm in my 20s it's all good 29, yeah, you're clear like, holding on the car <laughs> what are those How do you find that something like climate change then manifests in a young person's life and affects them? Well, we
0: spent a lot of time in rural and regional areas and I think it's quite obvious how climate change is affecting them with things like drought um, and the volatile weather conditions that we're experiencing and climate disasters that are happening, especially with the bushfires as we travelled around. Um, So that was really pertinent in the fact that Young people were sitting there saying, like, my family doesn't have a business anymore and we're suffering economically. It's having this huge ripple effect on our community because we can't grow our crops because there hasn't been rain for a year or something. Um, So it's in those ways. For other issues, um, say education, it's very widespread. I think in every single consultation, young people raise the fact that we don't get proper sex education, sexual reproductive health education, consent education, etc. And so they're missing out on those critical life skills. And feeling like, you know, once they turn 18, they leave sheltered school life and they go into the real world and have no actual applicable skills to live a adult functioning life. I know that was my experience and I'm sure it's the experience of a lot of young Australians. And so, yeah, like I said, every issue we talked about, young people had a really heartbreaking but often empowering story about how it affected them, but what they're going to do about it. And that's what I find very inspirational about. That generation, maybe it's my generation. I don't know. I'm trying to figure out, do I, your- am I young? <laughs> um, but it's your generation. Yeah, these, you know, few younger generations that yep. they're so driven by change. Like we're sick of talking about these issues. We're sick of repeating ourselves. It's time to actually get our asses into action and start mm-hmm. making that change. And they're ready to do that.
2: Taking you back to sort of the personal side of stuff. And you said you were really looking to meld your love of travel with this sort of drive around social justice, what what were the sort of first steps that created your sort of determination to make change in this world?
0: So as a kid, I was always very justice-oriented. I used to just be shocked at things like bullying in school, and I couldn't understand how young people could treat each other so poorly, and it really resonated with me, this sense of injustice and why these things happen. And then I also... Bit of a weird kid but really was fascinated by things like crime and justice and why Mm. people act the way they do. I remember when I was like 10, mum bought me a CSI kit and forensic stuff and I used to be really into all of that. And so when it got to uni time, I actually – started out at Notre Dame with law and journalism because I was right. like, right, I'm really good at arguing, really yeah. good at debating. That is literally yeah. me. I was <laughs> I'm, like- <laughs> I'm a confident speaker and everyone's like, you've got to be a lawyer. Just go. Yeah. Um, and then I was going through all of the options and I came across, you know, criminology, counterterrorism at Murdoch. And I was like, you know what, that's the stuff I actually am really interested in. Mm. Bit weird, bit on the side there, but really fascinating. Um. And so I started it probably for more selfish intentions in the sense that I thought I would enjoy it personally. And through my studies um, and my obviously my love of travel, I signed up to go on exchange pretty much like straight away. So I think I was 19 and I left to go to America for six months. Wow! Um, and while I was there, I got the opportunity to volunteer at uh, one of their – or actually a few of their kids' prisons um, right on the border of Mexico. So I was in San Diego. And those prisons were just – batshit insane. Like, they were horrible places where you're... you
2: were 19. Yeah, I was
0: 19. So I do... When I look back, I'm like, man, I was a baby. But at the time... I don't know, the confidence of a 19-year-old who, oh. who has ambition. <laughs> well, I
2: know. I look back at me in university and I was like... Who are you? Yeah, where can I get some of this, yeah. like, self-assuredness? None of that
0: imposter syndrome <laughs> that now I have. Back then I was like, yeah, I'm going to rule the world, I'm like, going to change everything. Um, right. And So you're in this prison. Yeah, and just looking around me at these, these concrete walls, at these kids, like kids as young as six, seven, eight are locked in. Some of them had life sentences. I talked to these kids. One of them was 13 and he's like, I'm never getting out of here. As soon as I'm 18, I move from this concrete cell into an adult concrete cell. Um, And their view every day, they got one hour to go out and exercise and it was just a desert around them. And that was the most heartbreaking thing, one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever seen. And so through that opportunity, I kind of switched around my thinking and I was like, I, I shouldn't be doing this for me anymore. I need to be doing this for other people, inherently for myself as well, but primarily for other people because there is just so much injustice in the world. And getting that first hand experience started that train of thinking for me. Um, and so as soon as I got back from exchange, signed up to another program and spent about three months living in India, um, working with sex workers and victims of human trafficking, Um, And while I was there in Mumbai, I spent a lot of time in the slums and brothels around Mumbai, um, primarily where the sex workers were working. Um, And again, just saw crippling poverty and injustice spread throughout this entire city. And I remember really focusing on what the community was doing because for me as as an outsider, I just couldn't understand how this stuff could happen. But Mm. seeing how the community responded and actually just – you know, pulled their resources together, thought critically about what they could do and worked on local level solutions that definitely wasn't making systematic, you know, high level change, but in the community was making a whole world of difference to these women and men who were suffering this injustice. Um, And I found that quite powerful seeing community level change as opposed to in my head, what I thought change had to be, which was fixing the entire world overnight.
2: Yeah, because – and I find it really interesting. My next question was going to be around sort of the United, United Nations as this, like, huge intergovernmental organisation. And I remember when I was in Year 12 doing legal studies uh, and studying – like, I remember – I found, like, an old Facebook status, you know, when you bring up your memories. <laughs> oh, it was God, like, it's so creepy. Let me, like, tell you this status I put up. Today I want to be a human rights lawyer, and I'm like, <laughs> "Oh my! Today is the day I'll fix the world." But I do like look back at that very, like, very on new, like, very innocent. Yeah, I, I really did. I remember I must have been doing human rights, and we were looking at like the particular different genocides around the world, and. I remember looking at the intergovernmental response and reading about all these like sort of conventions and you would know much more than me. But I remember feeling like quite protected Mm. by the international, international, uh, protected by the United Nations. And I guess as I've gotten older, that idealism has has sort of melted away for me a little bit. And, you know, personally I've become more interested in domestic politics. But I I wonder, what is it, like, do you really, do you have faith in these sort of international institutions to make positive change in the lives of, you know, those women in Mumbai? Yeah, so
0: I, if you'd asked me that six months ago, I probably would have given you a much more cynical answer. Um, And that's, I think, like you said, when you're a kid, you look at these bodies like the UN and you go, right, the world's saved. Like, we've got the UN. Oh, Bad things like, can't happen. There's the Geneva UN's Convention. Yeah.
2: I'm so glad that this exists because yeah. before I was a bit nervous about everything, but it's cool. But now we go, now you know, I realise we're all signed up to this thing. That and you can't explaining. possibly
0: violate it. And <laughs> yeah. then as you get older, you realise a lot of member states don't really give a shit and they continue to violate a lot of basic human rights. Um, and that's something that's really difficult to grapple with and I get a lot of questions from People around my age who are like, the UN doesn't do anything. What's the point of the UN? Um, and I guess, in response, firstly, when you look at something like the UN and you think, right, it's this, this body that can make change, mm-hmm. but it's made up of countries. That's all it is. The UN isn't a separate entity, it is the countries that it's made up from. And that's the issue. If we're having problems with the UN, it's because of the countries that are involved in them making the decisions. So I think it's really important that we do this um, work on domestic change, because fundamentally that that will flow into international change. Because if we're making change domestically, that will resonate with that member state and how they interact with the United Nations and how they create these treaties and these conventions and resolutions. So that's my first point. I guess, especially in the last few months since I've been working with Natasha and doing a lot of this work for this committee, I've actually seen some really tangible, widespread change happened because of the actions of CEDAW. Um, And that's something I didn't think I would see. So it's the Convention or the Committee on the Elimination of the Yeah, that whole long title, the CEDAW Committee, are the ones that sort of uphold that Convention on Women's Rights. And so, I, I mean, a clear example, which was a few weeks ago, at the moment, Natasha's in Geneva and they're all sitting, doing, you know, the negotiations and working with state parties who have ratified this convention. And... They were doing – at the moment they're assessing the Maldives and the um, sort of honourable delegates had met and they'd arrived and they did their introductory speech and they were explaining how because of the work of CEDAW and the pressure that this committee had put on them, they had actually now criminalised female genital mutilation across the Maldives, which has been something that was legal up until this point. And it's a a horrific crime that affects so many young women and girls and, I mean, it's mutilation of the Mm -hmm. body. And now that's been criminalised and that was either directly or indirectly but in part because of the pressure that this committee was putting on this country to uphold these standards on the international level. And I think what's important about these groups is that it almost embarrasses countries into, yes. you know, kicking into gear. Because, well, I mean,
2: you can see it yeah. in, in COP26, right? Exactly. It feels like there was this big run of like a week up to basically Scott Morrison getting on a plane where it felt like, and I love yeah. whittling things, you know, we, we see things analysed in such formal terms in the media, but when you really whittle it down to it, it really felt like... A dude who was going to a big conference <laughs> that didn't want to be embarrassed, so he, like, had to get his mate to, something. to help him with a better policy. Literally, so could, yeah. I mean...
0: It's like a uni assignment. Like, he hasn't prepared yes. at all, and he doesn't want to get up in front of the class with nothing prepared. So he's, like, last minute trying to fish something yeah, together. Obviously, yes. it wasn't a great presentation. Has a lot of room to improve. But... When you're gathered with international leaders and people that the world respects and looks up to, it's pretty hard to come into a room like that and be like, I have nothing. I have no plan. I mean, Scott Morrison still kind of did that. But it that kind of pressure and that, um, it's almost like the shame that's put on these countries totally. who are doing that stuff. And I've seen that be a really powerful tool because at the end of the day, like the international platform is still really important for negotiations, for trade, for peacekeeping. And if governments continue to violate that in countries there will be albeit slowly there will be some backlash to that um, and there will be challenges that they're going to face down the track and so through CEDAW I have had this renewed sense of faith or trust in bodies like the United Nations for the work they do um, because I have actually seen change happen which is you know that, that at the end of the day is what you want.
2: That's awesome. I'm just updating my Facebook status <laughs> to today I want to be a human rights lawyer. Again. Today I will be another human rights lawyer. I'll start my career
0: again. Get back to it.
2: What's it like being a young woman in advocacy? Because I'm just sort of like, I'm, I'm so amazed at everything. Like when you mention, oh, okay, so I signed up to go to America mm. and then you come back and then you're off doing another thing. You have been, you've had all of these incredible experiences what, what has it been like being a 19-year-old woman having these very adult experiences and seeing the world in perhaps ways that a lot of people in the comfort of, you know, we're here in Perth. Heading back to my house in South Perth, there's we are quite sheltered.
0: It's a very comfortable place to be. Yeah, um, it's like they call it a Canberra bubble. I think there's a Perth bubble as well, mm. and it's not to do with politics. It's to do with safety and security and comfort and a really nice privileged lifestyle. And I think everyone should have that, but the reality is they don't. And I I became aware of that probably through my travels as a you know as a teenager with my family, and I thought it is my responsibility as as a human being to burst that bubble and to put myself into uncomfortable situations so that I can understand the experiences of other people, but also make change, a critical change that needs to happen. Um, And yeah, I've seen some pretty nasty, awful things in the world and it's seen this side of humanity that's not great and it's not lovely. And um, it has absolutely been challenging. And I think as I get a bit older, I've only started to realise how it's impacted me now. Mm. I've really had this, like, nothing-can-touch-me mentality. Mm. I'm just, like, burning through the world, going to make change. Even if shitty things happen to me, you know, I've learned from it or there were positives that came with it, so it doesn't mm. matter. And now I look back and I think, like, actually I've probably, you know, sustained a bit of damage from that stuff that I haven't processed, that I haven't worked through. And honestly, since all of this stuff's been happening in, you know – in terms of the sexual assault and harassment space Mm. with Brittany Higgins and Grace Tame and this huge movement of Me Too, I've only started to realise how important that is. And that has really changed my mentality on seeking help, processing trauma and actually working through that. Because the reality of being a young woman in advocacy, particularly international advocacy, is that sometimes nice things won't happen to you. And that's, an awful reality and I hate the fact that that
2: can you unpack that a bit more mm. for me what do you mean by that do you mean in like a staffing capacity um,
0: actually I have been really blessed in all of my workplaces to have incredible female mentors and women or workplaces that have really supported me and I haven't encountered as much of that discrimination mm. and those challenges as I thought I would have I would say that the challenges I've faced have been more so in the environments that I've been in. So living in India as a young white woman by myself, Mm. I stuck out like a sore thumb Mm -hmm. um, and encountered a few situations that, you know, put me in pretty precarious positions. Um, Same goes for living in America. Same goes for when I lived in Sri Lanka um, or I spent time in Vietnam. And by virtue of The work I'm doing, which involves oftentimes a lot of vulnerable people who are also not in very nice situations, I am kind of exposed to that secondhand. Mm. Um, And that, as I mentioned, I used to think that I was fine and that I could kind of get through it because I was doing the right thing. You're
2: resilient. Yeah, I'm
0: I'm resilient. And it was only this year when I stopped and COVID was a big part of that, pausing and reflecting and realizing that this probably, you know, actually took a toll on me.
2: And I think it's... It's really like I, I think to your your experience in India, and I think about it it kind of sucks that yeah. if you were a young man in that situation, and I mm. think of this phrase the Flex mummy uses of like your skin suit. <laughs> if yeah. you had a different skin suit, if you presented in a different way, that impacts the experience that you have mm. in doing your advocacy, in trying to make change. Uh, do you think that advocacy is, like, what's your what's your next few years look like? Is this the space that you want to stay in? So I guess
0: the reason why I, I even really went into social justice initially was the, the other side career that I always thought about was politics, especially as someone who's good at arguing, good at debating, and has a pretty strong voice and wants to use it. And that seemed like the obvious path. And I remember from the as young as I can remember the age of like seven my family always like you're gonna be prime minister one day so in my head confident little Lucy was like yes I am I'm gonna do that and as I've gotten older and experienced or, or you know seen the realities of politics for women in Australia it's a pretty grim reality of what it's like um I guess I was a bit deterred from that whole arena and found a bit of solace in working in social justice outside of politics and outside of the public service. Um but actually I've read recently Sex Lies and Question Time by okay. Kate Ellis. Yeah. I don't yes. know if you've read it. I've read also, half of it. Yeah. Amazing book. Um and obviously that unpacks a lot of the discrimination and misogyny women face in politics. And I thought I was gonna read that and never look at politics again. Put that career away because mm. it sounds awful. But in reading that and seeing the fundamental change that women made in Australia, it was It blew me away. I had no idea how much women in politics contributed to the landscape we have now and to the to the progression that we've made over the past few decades. Um, and that book ends on I won't spoil it for everyone, but it ends on a really positive note in the sense that like encouraging women to get into politics because it is so important that we have that diversity and we have those experiences that aren't just that of a straight white rich man. Yes. Because that is the reality of our politicians right now. And so After reading that book, I sat there and I was like, maybe I do need to dabble in this at some point. And I don't think I'm ready for it now. Um, I I don't think I'm enough of a politician to be able to, or like, I don't think I have the personality so much for politics. Oh my God, no, you
2: can't say that. (sighs) I just had, we spoke to Anne Ali and she has just got the most amazing personality. And this is like, it's a major reason why I've wanted to do this podcast because- and it's so funny that you bring up Kate Ellis's book because there was this tension in Kate in the beginning of Kate's book that I was really trying to interrogate and I asked a couple of my colleagues and we were just sort of spitballing. And she, she sort of raises this idea of respectability mm. politics, like earning people's respect in parliament and not doing particular things as a woman because you need to garner people's respect.
0: Yeah. You have to have such a siloed...
2: personality
0: and appearance and that is so not me. Like I'm will happily say I like going to live music and gigs and raves and doing all the things that a lot of twenty five year olds like doing. So I
2: went to Shock One on the weekend, it was so good. So did I (laughs) (laughs) Yeah my my
0: best friend was supporting. (laughs) So I was right I love that. I but I'm sitting there going, can politicians do that? Is that allowed? And I think it's bullshit. I think they should be because that is the reality of a lot of 20-something-year-olds that I would be ideally representing is that young people like doing stuff that isn't conventionally politician-focused. But it makes me feel like that huge sense of imposter syndrome where it's like I'm not the perfect politician or the, the perfect woman that would fit in that that silo mm. so it's not going to be an arena I can step into without getting slaughtered
2: I literally put it to my colleague when I was re- I was listening to the audiobook and I was hearing all this stuff about the re- garnering people's respect and for some reason the question that came to my mind was like what if I had an OnlyFans and I wanted to go into parliament
0: what if who says that you can't you know, capitalise on your own yes. body and make money from that whilst also being a lawyer or a politician because I think they need to be two inherently separate things. And I the fact agree. that somehow that's seen as, you know, it's not respectable um, and it's not sufficient for that kind of role I think is so silly because how are we going to get actual diversity in our politics if we continue to get that same cookie-cutter model of who they're meant to be?
2: And we speak a lot about, you know, ha- having – a diverse parliament with people of diverse lived experiences. And I don't... But not too we... diverse. Exactly. You we can be diverse really... but
0: not diverse enough that you're going to threaten people's idea of what we need to be in this perfect human being. And it's just not true. And that's that's why I sit there and go, I would love to get into politics because I'm at this point where I really do want to make that kind of change, that high-level systematic change, and I'm finding it difficult to do at the moment. I think, as I mentioned with my work with Natasha and CEDAW, that's been a really good channel for that. But elsewhere, I'm in this really tough headspace where I feel like I'm not making enough change. And I think politics, you know, I've, I've listened to other episodes of your podcast mm. and I know that, you know, senators have talked about that glacial pace, that politics yes. moves that and how challenging it can be to actually make change. But you are sitting in that seat and making those decisions at that decision-making table and to be able to do that on behalf of young people and underrepresented and marginalised groups would be the biggest privilege of my life and probably anyone's life. And so, yeah, it is a space I would like to enter into, but as I mentioned, I just don't think politics is ready for actual young people.
2: Yes, I think you're right. I don't don't think that we are quite there yet, which it sucks. And hopefully through... I I think it's a real crash or crash-through sort of thing where we actually just have to... You just have to run.
0: Maybe I'll, maybe I'll you, be the first person. I'll go down crash landing and it'll be a disaster. But maybe no, no, set, no. set the stage for what this change needs to be, you,
2: you know? It's literally through it's like it's crash or crash through. It's you running yeah. and you showing that you can be a multifaceted human being who can be both intelligent, have policy solutions to offer, go to shock one on the weekends. <laughs> like that's what yeah. it takes. I think. it And that's why. Oh, my God, I'm so excited to put this Anne Ali podcast out. She's just such a gem. And just, yeah, I just I also think it takes, I think more and more the people in that building they need to, and I know it's easier said than done. But we've got to lose a little little bit of like being so risk averse. And I get it because it comes from the Australian public being like, oh, you put one foot out of line. That's it. You (laughs) say you commit to something in a press conference. The media is going to hold it above your Mm. head if you change your mind. I think COVID's helped a little bit like with that of flexibility and people saying, oh, I might have represented this in this way, but now I'm changing my mind. But I just I also think it takes politicians having more personality as well and allowing themselves to like – Let their
0: hair down a bit. Like hearing – when I was listening to a few episodes and hearing like senators swear, I was like,
2: oh, they're human beings. They're so personable. Do that that on insiders. Literally.
0: I'm (laughs) like, guys, we're all human beings. Can we just actually break down that mould of what this politician is and that concrete like wall they have around them because these are people and that's what our politicians need to be. They need to be real human beings who want to make change and have good ideas for change.
2: I love that, Lucy. The question that I leave all of my guests with, and in in your context, I'd sort of say to a girl listening to the podcast who's sort of like in year twelve, uh, in their sort of first years of uni, what for for a woman, young woman who's interested in advocacy, who has a Facebook status that says they want to be human rights. <laughs> advice be now that you have you've covered a lot of ground and you're only 25
0: I feel old but yeah
2: if I mean if yeah if I was looking back and
0: I was there and I was in year 12 and there was something I wanted to hear I think it would probably be take that imposter syndrome throw it in the bin use your voice use your confidence and your knowledge and your skills and your lived experience because those things are really powerful and use that for good um as I mentioned, when I was really young, maybe imposter syndrome wasn't the, the thing I was focusing on because I felt so confident and ready to challenge the world. But as you get older, it starts to creep oh in my a God, bit. Oh,
2: now you have to come on podcasts and unpack and it. And unpack with it. Me. Like, my, my psych, I don't need to go see my psych this week. Yeah, I've got so podcasts. we can go into the world we'll, yeah. and continue to advocate and make sure. Yeah, change. literally.
0: And, and unpacking that, like, why do I feel like I'm not. Um, educated enough or experienced enough or for someone like me i'm not disabled enough like i have a disability but i sit there and think i am not disabled enough to actually seek help in that way and it's bizarre that we continue as probably as women to critique these things that make us who we are and not be able to use i guess these labels for for change Mm. um and so yeah throw the imposter syndrome in the bin get the confidence of a straight white man because the confidence they have that's what we all need to be channeling um and you know this is three bits of advice but also listen that is another thing that i wish i had learnt more when i was younger is actually sitting back and listening and absorbing the things around you i'm Tell i'm a me speaker more about that. i'm a talker as you, you probably would have noticed <laughs> i like talking a lot and i really struggle to sit back and listen and learn and observe and i always admired people who could do that and i mean through i'm very lucky to have had the experience through youth rep uh, where I literally went on a listening tour. That was that seven-month consultation Mm. process. It's called a listening tour. And my entire job was just to listen. And that's where I really learned that skill of sitting back and listening and learning because as actually my partner said once, like don't go into the room aiming to be the smartest person, like aim to be the smartest person leaving. Sit back, absorb that knowledge that's around you. Listen to other perspectives and stories and experiences because you're going to learn a lot from that. Like you are not you are not the one voice who knows everything and i think as a young person it can sometimes feel like you're the one who's going to make the change you're going to actually you know everything and you're going to make that difference and that's good but listening is also really critical
2: well lucy thank you it's been so great chatting thank to you. you i can't wait until you're in parliament and we're going to shock one together yes we are. <laughs> i can't wait it's going to be so good thanks so much thanks alicia In the House and in the Senate is recorded on the land of the Wadjuk people. This land was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. If you enjoyed this episode of In the House and in the Senate, please jump into your podcast app, subscribe and give me a quick rating and review. This will help the podcast reach more people and I will personally be incredibly grateful. Also, be sure to head over to the podcast Instagram at in the House in the Senate, where I'll be sharing content from our guests, throwbacks to my time in staffing, and resources to help you get more involved in the political system. You can also follow my personal account at alicia.akenradburn. Thanks for listening and speak to you next week. Bye bye. Goodbye to you. Bye.